Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum, by face, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, our guest will be Charlie Deist, who has intriguing things to say about free speech, the free speech movement, and the free speech radio network of which my program is a part. I invite you to text or call in during the broadcast at 650 650- Tally-ho. That's 650-Tally-ho. But before our stimulating interview, the usual news and notes on psychology and medicine. Since our guest today will be talking about free speech, I here offer you a bit of history of free speech in these United States. Freedom of speech is the very first amendment of the Constitution and its states. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. In 1863, General Ambrose Burnside who may be the person we named Sideburns after, suspended the Chicago Times on the grounds of disloyalty to the Union. President Abraham Lincoln quickly rescinded that offer. In 1864, General Andrew Dix suppressed the New York Journal of Commerce and arrested the editors. Abraham Lincoln quickly withdrew the order. In 1873, the first anti-insanity law, making it illegal to send certain material, including information about contraception and abortion, through the U.S. mail. In 1917, the Civil Liberties Union Bureau was formed in response to the passing of the Espionage Act. In 1918, Congress passed the Sedition Act, prohibiting spoken or printed criticism of the government, the Constitution, or the flag. In 1919, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes declares that all free speech is not protected by the First Amendment, citing the example of crying fire in a crowded theater. In 1919, the Supreme Court upholds the conviction of socialist presidential candidate Eugene Debs for making speeches opposing World War I. Imagine if all the people who opposed the Vietnam War were thrown in jail. Wow. In 1921, the Sedition Act is repealed, finally. In 1933, Roosevelt pardons those convicted under espionage 
and sedition acts. We gain our Constitution back again there. In 1938, Life magazine is banned for showing pictures of a film of the birth of a baby. In 1940, the Smith Act makes it illegal to advocate for the violent overthrow of the government. In 1941, Roosevelt creates the Office of Censorship. In 1942, the Supreme Court determines that fighting words are not protected by the First Amendment. In 1952, free speech is extended to motion pictures. In 1957, obscene material declared not protected by the First Amendment. In 1957, the poet Allen Ginsberg's Howl declared not obscene. You all remember that poem? It starts, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, walking the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. In 1962, comedian Lenny Bruce was convicted of obscenity. It was overturned in 1964. Who knows what those two years in between were like for Lenny. 1969, the Supreme Court allows the possession of obscene material in one's private home. In 1971, a man wearing a jacket saying, fuck the draft, is protected by the Supreme Court. In 1971, the court also allows the publication of the Pentagon Papers. You all remember that. In 2011, violent video games are protected by the First Amendment. In 2017, a rock group, The Slants, were denied a trademark for their name based on the name being disparaging to Asians. The Supreme Court said the speech may not be banned on the ground. It expresses ideas which offend. As you can see, free speech is not always free. People have been arrested, lives ruined, for speaking out on certain topics in certain times of history. Now let's hear what today's guest, Charlie Deist, has to offer us on free speech. Our guest, Charlie Deist, is a writer, a radio producer, a licensed sailboat captain based in Berkeley, California. He studied economics at UC Berkeley, where he developed a love of the free speech ethos. As a libertarian amongst liberals, Charlie relished the role of contrarian in the classroom, where he tested his beliefs in the marketplace of ideas. After graduating with honors, he began working as a researcher and staff writer for the Oakland-based Seasteading Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to enabling the establishment of experimental floating communities, free zones at sea. Some call seasteading a libertarian pipe dream, or worse, but Charlie believes it represents a sadly needed new frontier. Charlie's political writing, including articles on sustainable agriculture and aquaculture, have been featured in Acres USA magazine, Eraticus, 
and on the BBC.com. His first full-length book, Hormetics, was published in May 2020. He also edited and produced my most recent book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. The Free Speech Network, Charlie's latest project, features programs dealing with controversial and alternative subject matter. He believes that all ideas must be given a hearing, especially those which are often suppressed. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Charlie. Hey, good morning, Richard. How are you? Doing well. How about you? I'm doing well. So what's the history of all this? Take us back to the beginning before we launch into more about free speech itself. How did you get involved in free speech since you went to UC Berkeley many years after Mario Savio gave the famous free speech talk at Sproul Hall? Right. I think uh, this story for me starts at the Free Speech Movement Cafe, right at the heart of UC Berkeley's campus. There's a little little coffee shop that has posters and uh, little plaques that talk about this history of the free speech movement. And it looks like it was quite a time to be a student at Cal, basically for an entire semester. Uh, it, the whole campus was consumed by these protests uh, that broke out around the issue of free speech on campus, specifically the right to campaign on Sproul Plaza and on the, the sidewalk that uh, kind of is the dividing line between the campus and then uh, famous Telegraph Avenue. And the campus basically said, you know, even if you're here on the sidewalk right on the edge of campus, this is our property and we don't want to mix uh, education with politics in this way course it was during the time of the vietnam war the civil rights movement so students had a lot to say they wanted to be engaged uh and part in particular things kind of came to a head when a student was arrested for violating the the ban on protesting on campus and was put in a police car which the students swarmed and uh, for the next several days it became kind of the 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 focal point for for all these protests so it was a, a very colorful time i imagine to be at cal uh, my era, which was from around 2008 until 2011, was kind of a different atmosphere. Um, still, you know, the students cared about politics, but uh, was not charged in quite the same way. Uh, and, and I came to Berkeley as kind of a contrarian libertarian, uh, dissenting oftentimes from my peers and my teachers in the classroom. Um, and so I, I've always had a, a fascination with this idea of, of free speech and what really counts as free speech and when people use free speech as a cover for some other uh, less noble agenda. Before we go on uh, more with uh, free speech, uh, you identified yourself as a libertarian. Uh, give our listeners a thumbnail sketch of what it means to be a libertarian. What is that? Yeah, I would distinguish between two different kinds of libertarianism, which I think contain two different views of free speech rights. The first could be called thin libertarianism, which is a strict belief in property rights, uh, rule of law, and basically says that, uh, you know, a right is limited to the owner of property uh, and that rights only extend um, to the owners of that property in a sense. Uh, in terms of how you exercise free speech rights. 
you can exclude other people from exercising free speech uh, on your property. And so by this rule, the sort of thin libertarianism, the UC system was in the right to stop students from protesting on their sidewalks in the 1960s. Uh, and they would also be right in preventing groups from inviting controversial speakers onto campus, as we've seen in the last few years, especially in 2017, when uh, student groups, the, the college Republicans, for, for example, invited Milo Yiannopoulos, who's kind of a right wing provocateur. And the university decided that the cost of security uh, to protect the speaker from the sort of violent mobs was not ultimately in the interest of students or the taxpayers or other stakeholders in the university. So that's one version of, of libertarianism, the, the strict property rights view. And I'm actually very sympathetic to this view, but there's another kind of libertarianism that you could call thick libertarianism, which argues that people should adopt more libertarian beliefs in their personal life, and it tries to win over converts into the cultural arena. You could sort of summarize it as being... Um, I guess kind of a libertinism in a way there's there's uh social liberalism maybe combined with a fiscal conservatism uh but the the thick free speech rights would grant that the students uh were right to protest what the university was doing back in the 60s and they would also I think argue that the university should allow a wide variety of opinions on campus today um so that's that's my starting place now let's uh, move on into free speech itself so you told us something about the history of this free speech movement uh, back in, uh, in Berkeley. Um, tell us about your entrance into it and what have you been doing? How did you start with this and how does it uh, take place in your life? Oh, gosh, I remember back in high school writing a letter to the editor of my high school newspaper, The Redwood Bark. And it was to do with the propositions. And I had uh, diametrically opposed opinions to the editorial board on basically every single proposition that was up for election that year. And so I, I said, you know, thank you for providing the service of your editorial recommendations. Uh, now I have a good heuristic in the future, which is just to do exactly the opposite of what the Redwood Bark says. And I always kind of relish that role of the contrarian. In hindsight, I'm not sure how much of it was being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian and how much of it was actually based on my beliefs, because I always think that there's uh, a good reason to kind of root for the underdog or at least let the, the strongest case that's against the majority of opinion be held up as the example and not have a straw man version of the argument um, or even worse, not, re not let it be represented at all. So that tendency continued into college in a lot of my classes, including a class taught by Robert Reich called Wealth and Poverty. We would have discussion sections. Reich would give his lectures in the big hall, and then we would break out into our discussion sections, and a, a TA would, would guide discussions on these kind of core social issues of, of wealth and, and inequality. And I enjoyed playing the role of uh, the libertarian there, who just sort of pushed the limits of, uh, you know, well, well, what if we considered this angle? Um, what if we did consider the the strict sort of uh, property rights version of libertarianism where there is no redistribution? Uh, I think since then I've kind of evolved away from uh, a strict libertarian view, but I cherish that that experience of having been uh, able to express the views and then being challenged by them 
in a thoughtful way. I never felt at Berkeley in 2007 to 2011 like I was in any danger for expressing those opinions. And as a result, I think that I was able to kind of work through some of them in a way where I, I ultimately ended up not holding them to that extent. But today what I see on campus with speakers getting shouted down or disinvited, uh, I think a lot of people are actually afraid to express any opinion that goes against the mainstream view. And as a result, they might go looking on the internet for people who share their opinions and they end up going down kind of a dark rabbit hole where because speech isn't given the light of day, uh, they end up becoming more radicalized in their views. Do you understand where the people are coming from who are shouting down people rather than listening to them? Do they have a, a rationale or are they just uh, acting emotionally and saying, you know, shut the hell up. We don't <laughs> want it. We don't care. We don't want to hear you. I tend to think that it's more of the latter, more of an emotional response. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that psychologically it's, it's unhealthy to uh, prevent yourself from being exposed to ideas that you disagree with. You listed all of the kind of history of free speech where we can point to cases where speech would not be protected by the Constitution. Fighting words, for example. If I were to say in a classroom, you know, uh, after this, let's all get together and beat up on so-and-so because he's taking a, a certain point of view, that would not be protected. And to the extent that you can draw a, a really direct line between someone's incitement of violence uh, and the actual act of violence, I would say, by all means, you know, you might need to meet that with, uh, with some sort of response other than just more speech. Um, I, I would say that the, the best way to deal with that is probably through you know, police and the courts, uh, rather than simply shouting someone down. Uh, I think that when you meet force with more force, it leads to a sort of spiraling. Um, and I think that this also gets to this question of whether the tactics used during the original free speech movement may have laid the groundwork for what we see today on campus, where it was kind of a, a list of demands that they had for campus. And even if their objectives may have been warranted, uh, I think that some of the means that they, they used uh, might not have been. So if, if inciting violence is not protected by the First Amendment, what are your thoughts when the President of the United States says to this militant group called Proud Boys, stand down and stand by? Stand by is a military word that means prepare to go into action. Mm -hmm. Is that inciting violence, and is that protected by the First Amendment? Um, that's a very good question. I think uh, the, the you know the Charlottesville riots back whenever that happened, I think maybe 2018. Uh, I think in some sense is kind of a continuation of the the crude version of the free speech movement, and basically the organizers showed up with bats and helmets and sticks expecting the police to referee their gang war with the other side. And I would say that that is certainly not uh, protected by free speech. And in a way, it can, it can kind of be resolved by the thin libertarian argument about property rights, where the government does not have a duty to provide a venue for uh, that kind of gang war. Um, when it comes to those specific comments, I think that uh, you know, the, given the, the climate in the country right now where we have 
um, people on both sides that seem ready to line up and, and, you know, knock each other up, bruise each other pretty badly. Um, we've, we've seen that, you know, we, I, I would say someone in a, in a position of power should be trying to deescalate as much as possible. Where does the law come in with regard to free speech? That's the, that's the part of it that I'm trying to, uh, to, uh, discern right. here. Yeah. Right. Well, because yeah, I think that if, if a group wanted to, uh, if a group wanted to get to, if they, if, if you get a permit and if you say that you want to, uh, have a protest or no, let, let's just, let's not even call it a protest. Let's just say that it's a, a demonstration. So, uh, you know, Trump supporters or the proud boys, they want to have a, uh, pro America demonstrate, or, uh, a demonstration. And it, and it becomes clear in the, in the milieu that, uh, that this is going to be greeted by um, a, an angry mob on the other side where both sides end up kind of coming with, with, uh, with, with bats and bricks. Um, if I were in the position of a government employee, I might not give that permit. Um, if I were a private property owner and I said, you're welcome to come and host this event on my private property, then that would be uh, that would sort of settle the issue. There are time, time, manner, and place restrictions on speech in general, which is typically why uh, the university. That's the reason that they give for why you know you can protest here, but you can't protest here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these college campuses are are putting together free speech zones where uh, you know you can you can go to this one little uh, square inch and and put up your signs. But I think that. Um, I think at the same time, the thick libertarian response would be that that as long as you are not um, calling for violence, as long as your protest isn't inherently a call for violence, uh, then then there should be venues for people to express those points of view. I'm still trying to get a a, a handle on the part of free speech that particularly attracts you to make it an interesting point in your life. Is it more having to do with what people say and have a right to say? Or is it more have to do with freedom of assembly? Where do you uh, enter this fray uh, of, of free speech? It just goes back to my experience that the life of the mind is an extremely important uh, aspect of, of any life. And the, the freedom to explore uh, wherever your mind leads you uh, is is a vital freedom. And so I think that seeing that the current climate is one where not only are there a shrinking number of venues where certain viewpoints are allowed, uh, but that the the culture is one of uh, intimidation and silencing on certain subjects obviously free speech in the abstract is uh, kind of, it's hard to talk about. It's only when you get into actual controversial ideas and opinions that, uh, that the, there's a real need for free speech protections. If all you wanted to say were lukewarm things that everyone agreed with, then there wouldn't be much need for free speech. Do you believe that the government is uh, constantly snooping and listening to what's being said around the country in, t- in terms of possibly suppressing or shutting it off? 
And, and before you answer, I'm going to give you an example. Some years ago, I had, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I had a, a, as a guest on this program, a Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum, a, a medical sociologist. And she was coming on to talk about um, needle exchange and harm reduction. Harm reduction is a philosophy whereby you do what it takes to reduce harm, even if it seems uh, counterintuitive. So it might seem counterintuitive to give heroin addicts free needles, but it turns out it's much better, healthier for them and for the society as a whole to supply them with clean needles because of the disease that they spread when they use dirty needles. So I was going to have Marsha on the program, and about 10 minutes or 12 minutes before the start of the show at 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning, uh, my uh, engineer, Michaela, says to me, there's a phone call here from the White House. I said, very funny. And she said, no, they say they're from the White House. I said, get their number and call them back. Somebody's kidding around with us. So she gets the number, she calls back, and it's the White House. So, okay, who is it? It's the drug czar. Uh, David Murray was his name. Okay, put him on. So Dr. Murray gets on. I say, hi, good morning. Uh, what's going on? What do I do to deserve the, the, the pleasure of this phone call? He says, well, you're having this, this uh, program today on uh, needle exchange, and I want to talk about it. The government has some pretty strong feelings about people giving away uh, free needles to drug addicts. And I said, well, you know, we're going on in, in, in seven and a half minutes. Uh, I can't bring you on as a guest this late. It wouldn't be respectful to my guest and to, to the whole program. But if you want to call in, uh, you're welcome to call in during the program. And he grumbled and uh, made some comments and uh, said, okay, I'll call in. Now, the important part of the story to me is that the government was aware of my little tiny program. That's the part. And the government wanted to have some say on what I and my guests were saying. That was extraordinary that they could be I, I can't even imagine how that long, you know, 10, 15 years ago, even now with algorithms, I don't know how they can monitor everything in real time. But, uh, but that was an important story in, in both my uh, political life and my broadcasting life. Right. Yeah. I think to answer your first question, which was just whether or not there is surveillance going on, I think that Edward Snowden did a did us all a service by exposing what was happening within the NSA. Uh, and, you know, you can debate whether that falls under the constitutionally protected free speech, but from a thick libertarian perspective, it, it certainly does. Uh, there's the, the possibility that big, you know, the government with all this data that it's collecting is uh, kind of uh, ham handed and how it can actually use it. So they end up, you know, picking up a, bu a bunch of false positives, and then they don't actually get what they're really looking for, which might be terrorism plots or uh, some other, you know, nefarious illegal activity. Instead, it ends up getting uh, either, you know, 
regular people pulled into the dragnet who then they just need to say, oh, this isn't what we're looking for. Or potentially it, it could uh, lead to uh, certain kinds of speech being suppressed. I think it's interesting that in that case, um, he was interested in having the conversation. He wasn't calling you to say, shut it down. And thankfully, I think in the U.S., we enjoy much stronger protections for that kind of speech. I mean, we could have a whole separate conversation about um, any of these issues, whether it's Needles or the Proud Boys about, uh, you know, what are the, the relative merits of a policy? And that's what I want to do with the Free Speech Network is to have the conversations where right now people tend to get uh, funneled into one of any number of echo chambers. They only hear the arguments that they want to hear and confirmation bias is just rife. So I want to kind of break down some of people's filter bubbles, get them talking with people who they normally wouldn't talk to, even when it's uncomfortable, even when there are disagreements. Uh, and now we do see that social media companies have more and more sophisticated algorithms for picking up on speech that goes against uh, at least the, the platform's rules. And one of the most recent examples of that is that, for example, on YouTube, uh, if you put out uh, any kind of information that um, not only information that contradicts what the CDC or the World Health Organization might be saying, but if you offer uh, some sort of alternative point of view to what they're offering, I think that early on people who were telling people to take vitamin C uh, were getting banned or having their videos removed from YouTube. And then months later, uh, Dr. Fauci reveals actually he's, he takes vitamin C. Um, and so this is just one of these weird kind of uh, paradoxes or contradictions that that I hope to to expose uh, and, and hopefully do so in a way that doesn't endanger anyone's life. Because there, there, I, I can see that there is some information out there that's just wrong that could lead people down the wrong path. But I would still probably say, let it see the light of day. Uh, people are better at, at sorting through that kind of information than government. What about disinformation? Do you think disinformation should be allowed on social media when it's clearly identified as disinformation? I think the devil's in the details there, because if, if you say when it's clearly identified, but when it's clearly identified by who? Well, for example, the president of the United States announces that he has the largest audience in the history of the world coming to his inauguration. And then you have cameras overhead counting the number of people and it turns out that's a patent lie. So he's spreading disinformation. Uh, I, I would say absolutely that should be protected because it's so easy to point that out if it's false. And, and in that case, it was false. And CNN and MSNBC can, can you know, plaster their uh, networks with, with the more accurate information. Uh, and, the, and the truth rises to the top. So I think that so again, sun, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And what about when the president of the United States says that if you uh, there, you can uh, take a disinfectant and, uh, and, and you'll be protected against COVID? Uh, and that is definitely disinformation. Should that disinformation be allowed? Again, I think that if you if you go back and kind of parse that quote, uh, you find that there he, he was, I think, referring to a, a UV light therapy that was experimental in Israel at the time uh, and that has also since been vindicated in some way. I don't know that it's the 
the standard protocol for, for treating COVID. But I think that um, that's another kind of instance where we get into our filter bubbles and we hear something repeated by our preferred sources in a way that is as uh, uncharitable to the person saying it as possible. And we all end up with this kind of skewed perspective. So I know that I'm guilty of that. And I think that um, a lot of my media sources were telling me leading up to the, the debates that, uh, you know, that Biden was going to be uh, so unable to string together a sentence that he would, you know, just get get uh, laughed off stage or have to be carted off on a on a gurney or something. <laughs> and then it turns out that, you know, he's fairly cogent and that he, he is. Uh, I think, you know, that that surprised a lot of the people on the right who were stuck in their bubble. Well, with regard to the president and the disinfectant, I heard the quote. I watched him the other night, and it turns out that people around the United States did try to swallow various kinds of disinfectants because it was reported to the Center of Disease Control. And I'm thinking that if a regular person put that kind of information out there to the public, and a bunch of people swallowed something as a result of it, there might be hell to pay for doing that, that, that they might not see that as protected by the First Amendment. What are your thoughts? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting into the weeds, but I do. Th- I, okay. looked at, I, looked, I looked at the same data as you, and um, I think we had this conversation once a few weeks back, and I wanted to check it out. Uh, and I think that uh, the, the, the spike that uh, was reported was before he made those comments, actually, um, as so it doesn't quite add up to, with that with that timeline. But, but we'll judge for themselves. We'll put a link to the in the show notes to the <laughs> each side of that, and people can can find out whether they passed the the filter bubble test or whether. Uh, I don't know if we had anybody injecting themselves with various kinds of. Just, the like. I think they were drinking. Yeah. Okay. Where do we go next? with free speech, Charlie. What do you want to talk, share with the listeners? Well, I think that uh, your, your show is kind of unique. Maybe we can talk about your show for a little while. Um, and you, you shared some articles with me uh, about a uh, the potential for um, you know psychedelic medicines, which is your topic and the, the topic that we've worked together on uh, most closely over the years. Uh, there's, there are concerns about you know, where this is headed uh, and including whether whether it, I think in the article it was it was partly a critique of capitalism. It was partly a critique of certain companies within that space, and it was it was partly a critique of uh, what they called the uh, maybe the medicalization uh, or or pharmaceuticalization of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is this is a kind of a practical question of free speech, where you have a lot of kind of gray area around. Uh, what are what are our our rights with respect to speaking about something that's illegal? So I guess I would kind of punt the question back to you um, to to find out what your thoughts are about how this fits into the free speech framework and what other kind of stories you might have about uh, where you where you've run into uh, suppression in your own work and in your own career as a, a broadcaster who's spoken publicly about these things. Well, I know that having uh, broadcast for a national public radio affiliate for close to 15 years, um, I was watched very carefully, uh, uncomfortably so. And I believe that the station that I broadcast with uh, KZYX in Mendocino uh, 
generally lived in fear because uh, the Bush administration evidently put some policy in place that a uh, an affiliate could be fined as much as five hundred thousand dollars for for an offense to the rules. So, for an example, uh, another time I had a program uh, related to the one with Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum on on uh, harm reduction, and this was also on harm reduction. It was by the pioneer in needle exchange named Joey Tranquina. And Joey Tranquina used the word bullshit on the program. And, um, and I got a two-page, um, uh, single-spaced uh, reprimand as a result of that. And it, 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 was, it was just almost silly. But the station's perspective was that if they didn't take that position, they would be open to the possibility of being fined out of existence. And mm. I can give other examples uh, of the same kind of thing. By the way, I did find that there was a professor of philosophy at Princeton that uh, published a book entitled Bullshit, and I was very attempted to, uh, to interview him and talk about bullshit for an hour, but uh, decided uh, against it. I think that speaks to the uh, selling power also of, of certain topics. Uh, I think that book was actually a, quite a, a bestseller. And, um, and your book also, you know, while not topping the, the New York Times charts, was a hot title because it deals with something that's a little bit taboo. Now that we're doing live online radio, we don't have all the same constraints of the FCC or uh, whatever the agency is that was behind that letter. Um, but I think that we still have to ask ourselves the question of uh, what constitutes responsible speech within a, a free speech paradigm. Um, and this is something that I've grappled with myself in, in my posting on social media, uh, in particular about COVID, which is another area where I, I enjoy being a little bit of a contrarian and testing some of the uh, the, the boundaries of, uh, of speech. Um, so what, what are your thoughts, first of all, on kind of the, the limits within the context of psychedelics for responsible free speech? I agree with the part of the Constitution which says that we oughtn't to incite violence against another person. That I understand and makes sense. I understand the government's position against inciting violence against the government, though I question it. But I understand it from the government's perspective. Radical overthrow is another thing rather than violent overthrow. But what I don't go along with, and I think is positively ridiculous, is when certain words are proscribed. For example, the seven dirty words, for example, uh, that are not allowed on certain uh, broadcasting. Uh, nowadays, with CNN and various kinds of uh, cable news and our program, because we broadcast independently, well, I guess we can say anything. That's why I could talk about the man with the jacket uh, during the introduction that uh, 
you know, had the F word on the on the back of his jacket. Uh, and, but this business of of uh, of making saying certain words illegal on the air and then finding uh, companies or broadcast stations out of existence, it's absurd because words are words. I mean, words are just, what are they? They're grunts of sounds that we, in groups, make that we agree on have meaning. And so one group of people in one part of the world make a grunt, and that means chair, and somewhere else a 100 miles away, they make a different grunt, and it means chair. And someone 500 miles away make a different grunt, and that means chair. And they all have different words of making chairs, you know, different grunts for making chairs. But that's really what they are. They're just these sounds that we uh, put, uh, ascribe to a particular thing. We all agree on it, and there it is. That's a table. Great. But to make those words illegal which has been going on through the, since the beginning of time, of course, we know that, I, I think is absurd, and I, I think it's childish, actually, to do that. I, I don't think there is such a thing as a dirty word, for example. It, it, just, to say, just, the th- just think about what it, how it sounds. That's a dirty word. <laughs> it, it's, it makes me laugh. It really does. And, a lot, and, and what are the dirty words? The dirty words are words mostly having to do with either excrement, urination and defecation, or sexual activity. In fact, I don't know if, if, if we can think of a dirty word that isn't in some way involved with either excrement or sexual activity, which says a great deal about our culture in and of itself. That we... I, think I, I think the one that I would add to that is probably the, the racial pejoratives. Well, I don't, I don't know if they're considered dirty words, are they? They're considered uh, uh, offensive words, uh, very offensive. Whether we can call them dirty or not, I'm not certain they are. And th- there is one word I thought of that might be borderline, but it's uh, the word bastard. But again, that it really is sexual. It really comes from the you know lack of marital uh, papers. In a, in a sexual intercourse producing a child, yeah. Yeah, I think they all have to do with the, the taboo and, and why, are, why do we have taboos? I guess if you trace it back to the origins, it might be that they come to be associated with things that somehow lead to kind of disorder if they're not compartmentalized in, in certain uh, places. So, and I think that this is where uh, the modern era gives us a, a new responsibility, which is actually trying to figure out, um, you know, what are the appropriate boundaries without resorting to superstition or without resorting to kind of ancient tribal taboos. Uh, So this, I think, turns out to be a pretty challenging task in some ways. Uh, Being more free actually uh, leads paradoxically to having a greater responsibility to, to deal with things um, responsibly and appropriately, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, actually, what we're getting to now, you know, is is sort of the roots of of people who are against free speech, or the roots of the limits on free speech. Right. So one root is if it has to do with sex or excrement, we don't want to hear about it. And another root is if you're doing something against the government, 
you know, that's liable to be suppressed. And then the third one is if you're inciting violence against other people. So it's it's aggressive activity, it's anti-government activity, and it's something to do with bodily functions activity that are that are the big uh, uh, objects of suppression. Right. And it, it makes it so that we have to kind of own our language and, and own the consequences. Um, and I think that this is one of the fun things about uh, working with, I'll call you my on-air talent, uh, people like you that uh, that take language seriously in its both its emancipatory potential uh, and in its kind of uh, restrictive potential, and trying to to use words and use language and and speech uh, to create new narratives that people can inhabit more productively. Um, well, you know, I have a big thing about hypocrisy because I believe hypocrisy is a um is dangerous a dangerous very dangerous to uh to to mental health because it sends a, a double message to the citizens uh you know about what's right and what's wrong what's okay what's not okay what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and um suppression of these quote dirty words is really a, a, a immensely hypocritical because almost everybody, not everybody, I'm sure there's a group that does it, but so many people use the vernacular at some time or another. And then so to suppress what so many people are doing is even more absurd. But more more dangerous perhaps is, um, is the suppression. And that was what the Sedition Act was against, right? The Sedition Act said if you if you speak against the government you can be thrown in jail so that was overthrown but i would be very careful nowadays before speaking against the government perhaps speaking against certain politicians depends on who the politician is i wouldn't be surprised if depending on how high up you go the up the ladder you go you know or how many connections the politician you speak about uh, has that you could end up in trouble, not necessarily being arrested, but maybe some other kind of trouble for speaking freely, uh, such as having your your taxes examined or some other thing like that. I remember um, uh, talking to, I don't know if we had her on this program or not, but this uh, political activist, uh, Julia Butterfly, I don't know if you remember her. She was the young college student who sat up in a tree as a protest for a very lengthy period of time. I believe it was up in Oregon or Washington. I, well, we I, had our own tree sitters in Berkeley, although that name doesn't ring a bell. She must not have been here. Yeah. Well, she told me, what, 10, 15 years after the incident that government agents checked in on her, if not followed her, you know, for 10 years after that. Just sort of, she knew it. She she got to know them as people. Then mm. that they were sort of keeping an eye on her. That's scary kind of stuff when you live in a republic that you're hoping will be a democracy. There was a similar story uh, in the uh, during the Obama administration with a journalist named Cheryl Atkinson, who uh, covered some some scandals, I think, and. 
um, was convinced that that she had been uh, targeted either with by the IRS, um, and it and it is kind of a. I think that you know, no matter who is in power, we all have an interest in making sure that that kind of a targeted persecution doesn't take place, uh, and that I think is part of that culture of, of thick libertarianism. Nowadays, with we have so many options for where we get our media that you you know, if you want to subscribe to HBO or the, or the channels that that use the dirty words, then you can. And and uh, I don't actually know. Well, I guess, you know, the, the, the cable networks, for instance, still have uh, some of those restrictions that the that the FCC puts on them. Um, and I think that this comes back to the, the question that I'm thinking about a lot, which is in starting a new network, what are my core values? Uh, and then what are the values that, I, that are uh, maybe my values, but which not everyone on that network needs to share? So as long as there's a space in which everyone can agree that uh, those core values are, are met, then I, then I think the experiment succeeds. But if it turns out that, uh, there are, that some people's core values do not align with other people's core values, then I'm afraid that the experiment could fall apart. Well, you mentioned network several times just now. So how about uh, telling our, li- our listeners uh, about the what you called the Free Speech Network. What is that? What's it about? Who belongs to that? Sure. So you are the uh, inaugural show on the Free Speech Network. Uh, I also have uh, a show on it called The Culture Club, which is uh, an examination of physical culture and physical subculture. Uh, you are also featured on that show talking about kind of psych- psychophysical fitness and the, the, the importance of exercise in a mental health context. Um, that one, I don't expect will ruffle too many feathers, uh, except maybe of some people that are thoroughly invested in the fi- existing fitness industrial complex, maybe some CrossFit gym owners or uh, people who, who want to keep it squarely in the box. And, and um, but, but beyond that, we're, we're expanding, adding new live shows like yours, which will be available as podcasts, as uh, videos that you can watch, and also la- with, with the live call-in format, so that we can hopefully inject the, that element of the unexpected that happens in live radio and the actual uh, meeting of of meeting of minds uh, and meeting of of different opinions. Uh, so I'm I'm planning to add a whole new slate of shows uh, this this year, 2021, uh, that will include people with um, just different you know kind of contrarian takes. I put a premium on ideas that are not normally found in the mainstream. And I'm also always looking for new talent. So if people want uh, to send me uh, a message, um, I am available by email, by phone. We can put my contact information in the description to the show. Uh, and right now the shows live on the Spreaker platform, which is where where your podcast is hosted. Uh, but there will also be a, a website and uh, we'll see if if censorship ends up uh, kicking in and some of the the content gets censored off of the the big platforms. We'll we'll migrate it over to uh, the alternatives. Well, uh, let's just be clear on that. If somebody's listening and they have a program that they want to submit to the Free Speech Network, you're saying that they can find you on something related to this broadcast. 
Yeah, we'll we'll put a, my, my contact information just in the description of the show. So if you're listening on Spreaker, check out the description. If you're listening on YouTube, check it out there. Uh, my email address is chdiced, uh, D-E-I-S-T, at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, uh, at Charlie Diced on Twitter. So there's any number of ways which people can reach me. C-H Diced. At the G- other one that, that can be real easy is uh, 650 Tally Ho. You can oh, call that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me a text message. Uh huh. Six five zero tally ho. Text you or call in during the program or just uh, text into you any time. Is free speech something that you hear about, that you read about? Is it is it a topic that's au courant, Charlie, or is it drifting, you know, into ancient history, as people get numb to suppression? No, I think in in some sense, people take it for granted because we think of the variety of options as being equivalent with maximum freedom of speech. And while it's true that in a way, you know, the average person has more ways to put their uh, voice out there into the world than ever before. It's also true that most people are not really exercising that right in any meaningful way. And I think a lot of that comes down to the the climate of intimidation uh, that's on I don't want to say on both sides, I'll say it's on virtually all sides uh, where we think that we are uh, supportive of free speech until it challenges one of our sacred cows and then we want it shut down. So I, I would encourage people to think about what uh, opinions they might be kind of allergic to in their own life and why that might be. Um, there are some reasons are better than others, uh, but uh, but I think that opening the door for uh people to puncture that filter bubble is uh, is something that I've, I've tried to seek out. And I think that it's expanded my, my horizons. Uh, there's also a, a debate going on right now about whether the social media companies should be treated as platforms or publishers. There's the so-called section 230 uh, of the uh, communications and decency act, which basically says that, that social media companies are exempt from some of the restrictions that would be normally put on publishers, um, they don't need to moderate their content in the same way because they're considered platforms. Gives them liability in, in the event that someone publishes something uh, that that violates their terms of service um, or that that violates just general limitations on on free speech. So I think uh, you know Trump has made it a, a big push, especially in the, the last days of his administration, to try to. Uh, remove the Section 30 protections off of social media companies and have them labeled as publishers. I happen to think that we're we're better off keeping those protections in place um, and and allowing, uh, or, or actually not forcing social media companies to moderate everything that gets put on their platforms. Um, and I think that in part, it's kind of a bizarre thing to me that an outgoing administration would want to suddenly give the government brand new powers to censor uh, social media companies. I say that competition is still the best option. The marketplace of ideas will do better when we have uh, competing networks that are offering you know, different terms of service and you can choose. What I'm hearing from you, Charlie, it sounds like there are three major areas that we have to be mindful of in terms of suppression. One is sort of what you might call interpersonal suppression, which is what you've described as, you know, violence 
as a way of shutting people down, sometimes most often mob violence. The second would be social media companies shutting people down. Social media now give access to people all over the world to talk to one another, and they maintain the right to eliminate people from their list or to shut down things that people say. And then the third, of course, is the government, right? Right. Those are the three great possible suppressors for us to watch out for. And for most of us, it's going to be the government first and maybe the social media second. Not too many of us really come in contact with people who are violent and want to shut us up with, you know, with physical aggression. You have to go to a public event for that to happen, right? Yeah, I, I, I suppose, although I think um, where, where the rubber really meets the road and where I think that the most troubling kinds of censorship are taking place today, it is on those in-person venues. In 2017 was kind of the last time that it was really in the news, uh, but, but there were a whole series of speakers, some of which were conservative, some of which were, uh, were, were fairly progressive, but merely had, had gone against some shibboleth of the university community and as a result were, were silenced and intimidated. Uh, Brett Weinstein is, is probably the best example of someone who's you know eminently reasonable, nonpartisan, just an independent thinker. Uh, he's at Evergreen State or was at Evergreen State uh, University in Washington State and was basically hounded off campus and, and forced to uh, resign his position uh, as a result of a, a small mob of students on campus. So I think that that risk is is very real if you have something uh, to say. And and most people, I think, have the luxury of not really having anything to say. <laughs> uh, but you and I know that, you know, we, we do have things to say. And so so maybe we should be concerned primarily with the, the climate of social media censorship uh, more so. I don't I don't mm-hmm. see government shutting down uh, any of these uh, uh now, but but I think that it kind of is increasingly acting in concert with social media companies, and what one says, the other agrees to. Well, I was thinking the government more shuts down Hollywood and the and and uh, and mass media if they're going to shut down, and uh, the well, and actually on that one, another interesting whole topic for another show would be the extent to which. Now the the Chinese government has say over what Hollywood produces because they're providing the bulk of the funding. So, for example, not mentioning something like the the, the Uyghur concentration camps uh, might be something that that a Hollywood filmmaker would be unable to say in this day and age if they wanted to have a, a blockbuster film, mm-hmm. or the NBA, mm-hmm. which was censored by uh, by by the the Chinese mm-hmm. Communist Party. What do you want our listeners to take away from today, Charlie? What are, the, what are the top bullet points when people think about free speech that you want them to know before we conclude? On the substantive issue, I would just have people try to distinguish between where there is a constitutionally protected right to speech and where there's a cultural concern that bodes in favor of free speech. So I think that uh, in, in most areas of public debate, we want to have a robust free speech culture, and that's not exactly synonymous with a legal protection. Um, but I think that the two are important, and America has been unique 
in providing people with both of those. Uh, on a uh, more kind of administrative level, I think that people should try to subscribe to whatever perspectives they care about. Make sure that you're subscribed to either the, the podcast or that you're on the email list. Uh, people can sign up for your email list at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. And that will make it so that if one channel gets shut down, you'll still be able to get information through email. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Charlie. That's uh, It's been a very interesting conversation. It's been a long time since uh, I gave a lot of thought to what happened back at Sproul Hall, but the, uh, the, the, the sequelae of that are with us all, all the time. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And special thanks to our producer, Charlie Dice, who is here today as our special guest, talking about free speech and the free speech movement and what it means to all of us. And this preceding program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, was brought to you by the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Kassif, is a social worker and political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Paul so much appreciates Mind, Body, Health, and Politics that he created three special Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee blends. He donates 20% of all internet sales of these Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffees to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, support us, and support the COVID Response Network. And then, please, join me next Tuesday, that's tomorrow, at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.